This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. We have a monstrous show for you today. We have a couple of extraordinary interviews. The man who put together the climate spiral will be on a little bit later in the show. He's happily waiting in the green room right now. And first up, we have an interview with one of NASA's astronauts, um, which is very exciting. But in the studio with me is Dr. Jeff. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well, sir? I'm well, but my iPhone isn't. It's got something about dodgy charging, so... (laughs) Anybody out there know anything about just iPhone threw it across the room. I just threw it across the room, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Ailey. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How you, are you going? I'm good. You must be pretty excited. Climate today. I know. It's all about climate and astronauts, really. My two favourite things. Yeah. Very <laughs> cool. Very okay. cool. All right. Take it easy. We've doing our Twitter feed. Now, folks, um, during the week... Uh, had the extraordinary experience of interviewing Terry Virts, who is one of NASA's astronauts. He was the pilot on Endeavour, and uh, we spoke to him um, for about 18 or so minutes. And one of the things I wanted to point out just before I played this is that the space shuttle, to my knowledge, is the most sophisticated machine ever built by humanity. And if you're one of those people who believes that humanity is the only form of life in the universe, that means the space shuttle is the most sophisticated device ever to exist, full stop, which I think is pretty cool. I'd actually like to think that there are other civilizations out there building better stuff. But anyway, it's still, still pretty cool. It is <laughs> extraordinary. And um, Terry and I had a great chat about this during the week, which we're going to play for you now. So without further ado, I give you Terry Verts. Our guest today is Colonel Terry Verts. Terry is one of the pilots of the Space Shuttle Endeavour. He's been on the Soyuz Space uh, Capsule Launch and he's been on the International Space Station, spent more than 200 days in space. He's actually taken more photographs from space than any other human being. Terry, welcome to 3RRR. Hey, it's great to be here. Now, you're in Australia at the moment. Um, what's, uh, What's the trip for? Well, there's several different um, speaking events that um, I've done at the Wired for Wonder and School of Life, um, and I've done a few interviews like this, and I think most fun of all has been just seeing Australia for the first time in my life. This is my first trip down under. Mm, Fantastic. Well, I guess you've been over the top of us a few times during (laughs) your career. I have, and you know, it's funny, Australia is very red. That's the impression I had flying over from space was what a red place it was so it's it's really cool to be here yeah. in person now, now let's talk about what first got you involved with nasa because you were a fighter pilot and a test pilot for a long time and flew i think in excess of something like 40 different aircraft during your career but something switched you to nasa talk us through that you know when i was a little kid the first book i ever read was about apollo when i was mm-hmm. in kindergarten and i just always wanted to be an astronaut or i had posters of airplanes and galaxies and, you know, astronomy pictures on my wall growing up. And I always thought, well, it's crazy. No one actually gets to be an astronaut. But I learned what was required, and I went ahead and kind of checked the boxes of going to university in a technical degree and becoming a pilot, and then eventually ended up getting lucky and getting picked to to be an astronaut. Mm. It sounds like we had the exact same bedroom growing up. Um, I mean, one of the things you might find amazing for someone here in Australia is that my wife thinks I'm a bit crazy in this regard, but I've watched almost every one of the shuttle launches from here during, um, sometimes during the middle of the night. Right. That's awesome. That's, that's, uh, it's just a cool thing. I mean, to yeah. have people flying into space is pretty amazing. 
Now, now give us an idea of the training and so um, the training required because this is a this is a major piece of equipment. It's very detailed. What sort of the, things did you have to do? The shuttle, in particular. Yeah. Well, the shuttle was. Uh, the most amazing flying machine ever built, or mm. probably that ever will be built. But uh, the astronauts were very spe- uh, specialized on the shuttle because they were short two-week missions. I was a pilot, for example, so like operating the, the Endeavor was a big part of my job. I also did robotics, and so we brought up two modules on STS-130, my shuttle mission. It was actually the only shuttle mission to ever fly two modules at the same time to, to build on the space station. So I did a lot of the robotics work, um, but each each astronaut had their own kind of. Some were spacewalkers, some did robotics, some did the science experiments. Everybody was specialized. Yeah, and and during the launch, I mean, what what specifically was your job? I mean, I, you know, I think back to some of the the older, earlier NASA days, and even pre-NASA sort of work, where people were just strapped to these rockets essentially and went up. But the space shuttle is a very different beast, isn't it? it? It was very different. Yeah, the Soyuz is essentially a 1960s Soviet ICBM, mm. and so there's very little to monitor during launch. Once you're in space, there's stuff you can do, but you're pretty much along for the ride. But on the shuttle, it was very manually intensive. Um, We could have taken over and flown manually for almost the entire ascent phase. Um, Hopefully we didn't have to do that. Hopefully the computers took care of it, but there was a lot of work for the pilot and the commander to do. Mm. Now, talk us through the launch itself. I mean, what, what's that experience like? I mean, I, I, you know, the word awesome probably comes to mind, but it just yeah. seems to me as must be one of the most incredible experiences you've ever had in your life. It's, in, that's, I mean, words can't describe it, but mm. the space shuttle was um, uh, huge. And I mean, you, I was on 4 million pounds of rocket fuel. Uh, when the solid rocket boosters lit, it shook and vibrated and you know, leapt off the pad. I launched at four in the morning and there was a thin cloud layer above us. And so as soon as the rockets lit, it turned into daylight with all the reflection from the fire off of the clouds into the cockpit. It was pretty spectacular. Um, And during ascent on my shuttle flight, I remember shortly after liftoff, I looked out the window and I could see the moon off to the east. And we were, here I was on a spaceship, you know, with my friends from my crew flying towards the moon um it was just like experience after experience that were things that i never could have imagined or were, it was the experience of a lifetime and they just kept on happening every seemed like every few minutes yeah uh, i mean that sounds extraordinary wait once once you got to orbit i mean what what changes in terms of what you're doing on board i mean we've all seen those images of everyone sort of takes their gloves off and things float around but but what yeah. happens once you actually achieve orbit from, from the perspective of the pilot well, the space shuttle, what made it so amazing is that it launched as a rocket, and then it became a spaceship, and then we turned it back into an airplane. And so you had to take this vehicle and convert it into a spaceship. And we actually spent two days before docking with the station doing this conversion process, and we had an inspection uh, that we had to go through to make sure all the tiles and the heat protection system was safe and intact so that when we came back to earth we you know there wouldn't be any problem Mm. which is what ended up happening to columbia when there was the space shuttle accident yeah Mm. and you you mentioned the two modules um that uh, the primary mission i assume for sts-130 was to help build the international space station what what were the two modules that you delivered that's right. It was what's called an assembly flight, and you know, over a 15-year period, almost, or you know, more than 10-year period, uh, there was a lot of assembly missions. Well, I brought up uh, a big living module called Node Three or Tranquility, 
and it's where our exercise equipment is, the bathroom is, the water and air recycling systems are. It's kind of the living module of the station. And then we also brought up the cupola, which is a seven-windowed module, which has the best view that humans have anywhere on Earth or off Earth. It's just an incredible place that you can see the Earth and stars uh, and also do robotics. When, we're, when you're moving the robotic arm to move stuff or capture cargo ships, um, you can look out the window and, and see what you're doing. Mm. Now, Terry, in these environments, uh, you know, it's... It's easy for people to forget just how dangerous and how difficult it is to work in these environments. I mean, right. in the early days of human spaceflight, the, the difficulties around movement in space were, were almost preventative. You know, we, we couldn't really even do some of the things that we tried on the early, in the early Apollo days. How did you find that in terms of your EVAs and so forth when you were outside the protection of the shuttle or the, of the space station? What was it like? Yeah, well, my um, I did three spacewalks, three EVAs, and they happened after I was in space for a few months. And so I had the benefit of I I knew how to float. I could maneuver around without any problem. Um, what was amazing on the space shuttle is that we would send up sometimes rookies on their very first flight, mm -hmm. and four or five days later they were outside doing a spacewalk, and and they didn't have the benefit of you know weeks and months of experience. Mm -hmm. um, so I always so I once once I did did it, I can look back and be really impressed with what those guys did. Um, but it takes some getting used to. I mean, in when you float, you move with your hands, and you can carry things with your feet, um, but, you know, you kind of walk with your hands, and so it's an entirely different way of moving around. When you do a spacewalk, you really have to go slowly. Um, I was given the advice by a fellow astronaut, Rick Mastracchio. He told me, if you're going slow, you're going too fast. So you just need to move slow because you're so heavy. The suit is 400 pounds, and you're probably carrying a few hundred pounds of stuff. And it's pretty easy to get moving, but the problem is then you have to stop the motion on the other end. Yeah. And when you're doing the repairs or the assembly or any of the work, you can't really drop your tools and hope they're going to be there later in a sense. I mean, did you did you lose anything while you are up there? Um, inside the station. It was funny. One time, one of it, we don't know who lost it, but we had a torque wrench where you could set a specific torque when you yep. tighten down a bolt, and it just disappeared. It was gone. For, and then, we, like, a couple months later, we found it. Um, we had these little cameras. Um, I took a GoPro camera outside on my spacewalk with me. Mm. But on the inside, we had these things called ghost cameras, and they're really cool little devices. And they got three of them. And so I took one to use it personally, and another crewmate wanted one. And then I kept one as, like, the group camera. Mm. And the next day the crewmate's camera was gone. And I was like, God, oh, we just got it. <laughs> it was gone for months. We couldn't find it. And finally, at the end of my mission, I was like, all right, we got to fess up and tell Mission Control so that they know that we're losing one. So I put my tail between my legs and I told Houston. And then, like, later that afternoon, we found it. It was, <laughs> it was hidden underneath of a shelf. It so. is, yeah. I, I just imagine how that, that conversation would go with, with, with Houston, that, you know, that they would be well within the rights to say it's there somewhere. Because right. <laughs> it actually was. It's yeah. actually going to be on funny. the station somewhere. Right. Um, now, in terms of um, the, the, you mentioned the module with all the windows and so forth, and one of the things you've you've done quite spectacularly is produce some amazing photographs um, from right. space. One in particular, though, I'm, I'm interested in you describing is is what the auroras look like from space. I mean, we see spectacular pictures of them of the northern and southern lights from Earth. Right. But what's different about them when you're in on the space station? So it's just unearthly. So I, 
I'll say the best way to experience this photography is actually um, I, I helped make an IMAX movie called mm. A Beautiful Planet, and it's showing here in Melbourne right now, and it's the closest that I've ever come to being in space without actually going into space. It's, re it's just an amazing documentary type of film, A Beautiful Planet. And in there, there's some Aurora footage, um, but the, the northern lights always seem to be kind of in the distance, so you would see this thin green line, mm -hmm. and I could, you can actually see it. I could see it move, like in real time. It was a ghost kind of wiggling and, and moving around in the distance. Um, and I could perceive the green and red colors, um, but the southern aurora, for whatever reason, the way the magnetic pole is oriented, I don't know why, but they, they just seem to be a much bigger aurora. And there was one particular night that was, I'll never forget it. I was flying and I was looking ahead and I could see this cloud in front of us. And I thought, well, there's no clouds up here. What's going on? And it was an aurora. And we flew right through this gigantic ghost. It was like a Star Trek movie or something. Mm. You know, it was just otherworldly it was awesome yeah yeah i mean that that sounds like something that uh you would only see in a science fiction it movie. was a science fiction movie yeah it yeah. really was now, now speaking of which um i mean one of the things you're famous for is uh when there was the tragic loss of leonard nimoy you actually gave the the vulcan salute from orbit and took a photograph of that right. i mean what what moved you to do that because i think it meant a lot a lot to a lot of people it, it got tens of millions of hits i think on my twitter account mm. uh I got an email from uh, a friend of mine at NASA that said, hey, Leonard Nimoy passed away, can you do something? And it was the week where I was doing three spacewalks, and it was the day before my final spacewalk. I was super busy, I didn't have any time, and I didn't know what to do, so I came up with the idea. I ran down to the cupola, I did the Vulcan salute, and just took a picture with the Earth in the background of mm -hmm. the Vulcan salute. And I, I think I tweeted it without any caption, I just sent the picture out. What I didn't realize is that <laughs> The part of Earth that's in the background of my hand is the east coast of America in right. Boston, which is Leonard Nimoy's hometown. And I didn't mean to do that. It was just, you know, by the grace of God, you know, it was, it was just an amazing, um, completely wonderful, serendipitous moment. And as fighter pilots, we always say, I'd rather be lucky than good. And that was definitely one of those moments. Yeah, uh, that's great. Now, you were up there a little longer than originally expected. I mean, how, how did you find the isolation and so forth? Because this is a an environment that humans, in a sense, really should not be in. I mean, what was that like? Right. So we were... Um, there were three rocket explosions that bracketed my flight. Uh, the orbital Cygnus cargo ship blew up. Mm. And while we were there, a Russian Soyuz blew up, and then as we were coming back, a SpaceX Dragon blew up. And when the Soyuz blew up, it's the same rocket that humans launch on, and so there was an investigation, and they delayed our replacement crew while they did the investigation. And so we didn't know how long we were going to be in space. Like, we were literally stuck in space waiting to come back to Earth. Yeah. And there have been astronauts that got delayed before, and, and sometimes, you know, people aren't happy. At the, but our attitude was... This is my time to be in space. I've got the rest of my life to be on Earth, and I'm just going to enjoy it. And then I'll be back on Earth, and I'll enjoy Earth when I'll get final. I got finally, I'll get a chance to go to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it was just a more of a mentality of you know I'm going to enjoy it while I can, and then I'll have the rest of my life on Earth, and that that helped me out a lot. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that, that sort of leads me to another question, which is when you did come back, I mean, what, what changed about you and the way you perceive things down here? Because we always hear these stories about astronauts coming back and everything's different and everything petty down here seems even more petty. But, but did right. you, I mean, did you change in yourself? Are you, are you a different guy as a result of all this amazing stuff? You know, I hope not. And I don't think that so that much, but you'd have to ask those close to me. Um, although the petty thing really is true in that, you know, I can close my eyes and take myself back to the space station and then realize that all this stuff that seems important is just not. Um, so, you know, that there is some perspective that I gained. Now, there's a lot of uh, talk at the moment with Mars, especially with Elon Musk and others getting involved in various aspects of space exploration. What, what do you sort of see as, you know, the next 20 years of, of exploration for us? What, what sort of things are you hoping that we'll see in our, life, our lifetimes? Well, I hope that we can come up with a plan that is politically viable, that can withstand, you know, administration changes, that can bring an international partnership together and, and keep them together, uh, that will allow us to do some exploration beyond Earth orbit. Um, I, I think the moon is a great place to test out technologies, but I think that Mars really should be our destination over the long term. It's for the 21st century destination. So that's my hope, is that, A, most importantly, that we can come up with an actual plan, more than just words, and that uh, B, we can stick to that plan and, and you know, create the partnership and the programs that will actually build hardware that we'll actually use on our way to Mars. Do, do you think at the moment we have the technology to get there? It's, it seems such a long time since we went, went to the moon. Are, are, right. we, are we enabled enough at the moment to get there, or is there still a lot of work to do in that regard? Well, the, there's really two ways to get to Mars. You can use a traditional chemical rocket. And that's what we used on the space shuttle and the Soyuz and Apollo. And it's, you know, you burn an oxidizer and a fuel and that can get you there. It takes about six to nine months to get there, which is a long time. Uh, I, in my opinion, it's too long. The most important thing is that while you're doing this, Earth and Mars move around the sun. So you have to wait an entire Martian year before you can come back. And the, your whole mission ends up being about three years, which I think is too long. If you use electric propulsion... Uh, you can get there a lot quicker, maybe in two months. You could stay on the surface for a month and then come back. You know, and the, the whole mission duration is six months rather than three years, which is a huge amount of food and water and clothes and you know equipment breaking down and spare parts and um, mm. and it, with the dollar per pound of the surface of Mars, you end up saving lots and lots of billions of dollars. The problem is, you need to have an electric propulsion system big enough to push people there. Uh, which we don't have yet, so that would be a technology we'd have to ge to generate. Mm. Now, Terry, you're you're still a very fairly uh, young guy relative to a lot of the astronauts around at, uh, <laughs> at doing tours of Australia at the moment. Um, what's what's next on the? Um, I can't wait to tell him you said that. By yeah, well, Ron, you know, and, Ron and Andy. Yeah, um, but we we you know what's next on the agenda for you? I mean, you, you've got a huge career ahead of you now. Well, hopefully, yeah. You know, in the last two months, I I wrote a book. Um, it's going to be a space photography book, and um, I can't wait for that to come out. It'll come out next fall. And uh, so that's been a part of what I'm doing. And I'm uh, doing speaking now and, you know, trying to share the story of space. Uh, when, I, when you're at NASA, there's a lot of limitations and you, they don't let you out very often to do this. And the story is something that I think so many people are interested in. I'm, I'm hoping to kind of take that story around the world. And then I think there will be, you know, maybe some flying or business that I eventually get into. But for now, I'm focusing on the book and speaking.
Well, Terry, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Have a great time while you're here in Australia, and we look forward to many more of your uh, your great stories about uh, your time in space. And I think the many, many photos you've taken that you've spread around the world will be inspiration for a lot of people for a long time. So thanks for chatting to us on 3 Triple R. Awesome. Thank you very much. I can't wait to come back. You are listening to 3 Triple R. It's Dr. Shane here, and it's, it's uh, Einstein and Gogo. It's a science program. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Ed Hawkins. Ed is from the Department of Meteorology at the University of Reading in the UK, and he's out here travelling the country at the moment. Ed, welcome to 3 R. Great to be here. Now, you are otherwise potentially known as the spiral guy. Is that, <laughs> is that what they call you now? Uh, maybe sometimes, yes. Yeah, so you, you put out this amazing... Just we'll, we'll just backtrack for people in case they haven't seen it. But uh, there's so much data on climate that's been around. And, and to be frank, in my opinion, I think a lot of it's really badly presented. And you put together this spiral that sort of grows from the middle of uh, temperatures. I mean, what, what made you do this? this I mean, it's so, so visual. It's mm-hmm. easy to see. The, the idea is just to try and communicate the changes that we're seeing to our planet. We have good records of temperature globally going back about 160 years, mm. and we need to try and communicate to the broad audience the fact that temperature has gone up by about one degree globally in that time. And just presenting it in a normal way, in a normal line graph, as we're used to seeing, wasn't necessarily the best way to communicate, I don't think. So uh, I, I had an email from a colleague, Dr. Yan, who emailed me and said, well, how about a spiral version? You know, maybe this will help communicate better. And so I, I made the spiral version um, to show an animation of, of how the temperatures changed over this time mm. and put it online. And suddenly it was shared, being shared worldwide. And, and that was great. It seemed to resonate with people who aren't necessarily scientists. And yeah. they, they seem to understand this better. I mean, I can't imagine another piece of data on climate that has been shared more, it would seem. I mean, this, this is, I mean it must have gone millions and millions of times. It was certainly shared millions of times on Facebook. Um, and then I think the, the biggest impact was when the Rio Olympics used it during their opening ceremony. Right. They, they had a whole segment oh. on climate change um, during the opening ceremony, and they had uh, they used a version of the spiral, and so it was probably seen by about a billion people. Yeah, that's a that's a reasonable number for that's, any scientist. That's a pretty is good it? coverage, I would have thought. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, scientists usually, you know, if three people read their paper, it's pretty good. <laughs> exactly, but yeah. a billion people. Now, um, I, want, I want to sort of take things back a little bit because uh, when you first came in here this morning, we were chatting about some of the history, and I think it's great for people to hear some of the history. When did we first start to work out? in the scientific community that something was potentially going on here or or when did our first understanding of how this sort of uh, potential change due to the atmosphere was occurring? Talk talk us through some of the history there. I don't think everyone necessarily realises how long we've been doing this. I mean, it basically started before Melbourne was founded. Right. Um, So back in the 1820s, um, the famous mathematician Joseph Fourier was in Paris uh, and he was trying to work out what makes the Earth habitable? Why is the temperature of the Earth roughly 14 degrees uh, and not another temperature? Uh, and so he was trying to... He used uh, estimates of how much energy was coming from the sun and tried to work out, well, was that enough to, to explain Earth's temperature? Uh, and all his calculations suggested that actually it didn't seem to be enough, uh, that Earth should be more like the planet Hoth from Star Wars right. rather than <laughs> you know the nice habitable world we live in. It should be about minus 20 um, rather than 14, uh, and that would be a very different world. Mm. And so he couldn't, he couldn't explain what it was that was making the Earth a habitable temperature rather than this very cold world that, that his calculations suggested. And he had various thoughts and ideas about why this might be. He thought there must be another source of energy, either from geothermal energy from the Earth's core or somehow outer space was providing more heat 
to, to warm the planet up. Um, he kind of dismissed those ideas. He worked out they probably weren't true. Uh, and the other idea that he had, he sort of speculated that perhaps there's something in the atmosphere acting as a blanket um, to ensure that the heat doesn't escape as efficiently as he thought mm. it did. Smart guy. Smart guy. And mm. uh, so he, yeah, he put this out there uh, as an idea and then people went away and tried to work out, well, you know, what is it? Is it something in the atmosphere that's doing this? Uh, and it then took a, a, an Irishman, uh, John Tyndall, who was working in London at the time and he built a very clever piece of apparatus in his laboratory uh, and demonstrated that um, certain gases, which we now call greenhouse gases, uh, they absorb infrared radiation or heat. Um, and so he did this in his laboratory, very clever experiments, um, and, and showed that gases such as water vapour, such as carbon dioxide and methane, absorb the infrared radiation. Uh, and then he realised that, of course, that as the Earth gives off heat and, and infrared radiation out into space, that these gases would intercept that uh, on its way out to space and so act as this blanket, which means that Earth's temperature is 14 degrees and not mm. minus 20. And so the greenhouse effect is a good thing mm. because it yeah. actually makes our Earth a habitable, livable place uh, for, for us to thrive. Um, but of course, what is happening now is that these levels of greenhouse gases are going up and we say that's pushing temperatures even higher, which is, mm. is the human influence that we're seeing. Uh, um, some of the, the context here is interesting. So we're talking about hundreds of years, you know, well over 100 years ago when this was first um, uh, thought of and, and demonstrated in the yeah. lab. We, we didn't have uh, concepts like uh, plate tectonics or even continental drift theory back then. Mm -hmm. So um, for, for those of you who are, who are not aware of the way we saw the Earth back then, we, we viewed it as a shrinking apple, a cooling shrinking apple. And the reason there were mountains was the same way when an apple dries out, it, it gets these wrinkles. So that, wow. that's where the science was in some other areas that we, we today just, we don't even think about that now, you know what I mean? Anyone with a, a, a GPS in their phone can, you know, if they hang around long enough, can measure continental <laughs> drift occurring and plate tectonics occurring. Um, but, but, you know, this stuff is very early science. In, in a sense, it's that sort of very seminal science, like some of the Newton's sort of experiments on gravity and acceleration and so forth. So it, it, it feels as though it's taken, you know, taken a while to be accepted outside the scientific community in some regards. Uh, the, 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 yeah, the physics and chemistry that explains what's happening to our planet is 19th century physics and chemistry mm. that we've understood since the 19th century a very long time indeed it's you know it, it, it isn't controversial or it shouldn't be controversial but yet you know there are still many people out there who who seem to want to suggest that this 19th century physics isn't isn't correct yeah yeah but is the question um is is climate change happening or are we to blame do some people say, yes, it's happening, but we're not to blame? Is that the issue? I think there's a whole range. Yeah. Um, I think there's people, there's a particular Australian senator who uh, I believe in one of his speeches denied the greenhouse effect even right. existed. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but then there are others who say, yes, we, you know, it's changing and that perhaps we're, we're slightly to blame, but it's not going to be a big problem in the future. And so there's, there's a whole range of people who... Uh, oh, okay. But then there's also people actually on the other side who take it too far and say this is going to be catastrophe, um, humans are going to, you know, come extinct. And so you can push it too far as well. And, you know, I think it's important for the, as a scientist to um, emphasise where the science is. There are very serious risks that we face, um, but we shouldn't uh, go too far and, and over make it alarmist, if you like. Mm -hmm. So you talked about, you know, the, the stuff from Fourier and, and Tyndall, and that was kind of establishing the, the natural greenhouse effect, I suppose. So when was it did we first realise that global temperatures were increasing and that we could possibly be the culprit. Mm -hmm. When did that happen? 
So the early science was mainly, as you say, about understanding the natural greenhouse effect and understanding the ice ages. So the geologists had realised that every 100,000 years or so that the, there were these enormous ice sheets that expanded, especially over the northern hemisphere, um, and carved out the, the lovely valleys we see um, in, in, in many places to, today. And so they wanted to try and explain that. And so it was, they needed something which, uh, which explained the enormous changes in temperature. And that was what the original understanding was. They were trying to work out what it was in the atmosphere that was changing that could have caused that, and carbon dioxide changes was, was a key part of that. But then later on, it began to be realised right at the end of the 19th century that actually humans could also change the levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Before that, it had been a completely natural effect. I think the first person to suggest this was a chap called Niels Ekholm, who first suggested, well, actually, you know, the amount of fossil fuel we're burning now, you know, could potentially have an effect. And he, he saw that effect to be actually several hundred years away because he didn't foresee the massive growth in industry mm. that mm. was going to happen at the start of the 20th century. Wow. Um, and so he, he kind of made this statement that, you know, perhaps we can affect the climate, um, but not for a long time. And then as the Industrial Revolution took place during the start of the 20th century, um, people then started to realise that things were actually changing um, because of the, the, the amount of fossil fuels we were burning and increasing the levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And then I think the, the key moment for me is in 1938, where an English Englishman called Guy Stuart Callender, he was the first person to demonstrate that Earth's temperature as a whole was warming up. He noticed, he collected data from cities, temperature stations all over the world, and put them together, doing all the calculations by hand. There were no computers. You, you, know, you, you can go and see his notebooks uh, in the Science Museum in London, in meticulous calculations, all done by hand, um, as he put all this data together and demonstrated that at that point, Earth's temperature had gone up by about 0.3 degrees. And he also managed to collect together the various scattered carbon dioxide measurements that had been made at that time. There weren't very many, but he put them together and, and suggested that we were already having effects on the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And then he, he worked out roughly, well, if we've seen that increase in carbon dioxide, what should that mean for the changes in temperature? And then he went away and measured the changes in temperature, and they roughly agreed. You know, so all the way back in 1938, we had a complete understanding that humans were increasing greenhouse gases that should increase temperatures, and they were increasing by roughly that same amount. And mm. that, to me, is you know that's the complete theory right there, all the way back 78 years ago. Wow. So, so it, when we go back there, I mean, one of the things I you know, you and I spoke about this a bit before the show, is this issue of where the scale is, you know, where, where we're talking about the problem. So even though we knew that back in 1938, if they did the calculations at that point in time, would it have looked like, you know, we've got a thousand years to worry about this problem? Or would it have looked like, you know, our, actually our grandkids are going to have to deal with this, even back, back in 1938? I mean, where were we at that point? I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, one of the researchers said a couple hundred years. But when we really made that connection, where were we sitting in terms of timing? Because you, you could, if, if you wanted to at that point, you could actually start determining how quick the growth in industrial use of these various pollutants were and factor all that in. So, I mean, what did it look like back then? So I don't think <coughs> Calendar, for example, foresee, again, the, the growth of industry. I mean, it's mm. gone far faster than anyone predicted at the time. But there are also other factors um, playing a, a competing role. So as we're burning our fossil fuels in our power stations, um, they also, as well as greenhouse gases, they also emit particles, small dust particles into the atmosphere. Um, uh, and those particles actually reflect sunlight back into space and actually help cool the planet slightly. And so there's this balancing effect of 
um, the increase in greenhouse gases and this cooling effect from these particulates. Uh, and that then was broken in, in the 1960s when the Clean Air Act came in, which then put filters on our power stations and stopped these little particulates being emitted. And so that cooling influence went away. And then the warming influence, the greenhouse gases, mm. then came to the fore. And so during the 70s, you know, then we started to see global temperatures start to, to really rise again because this cooling influence had been removed. Three. Triple. We're speaking with Associate Professor Ed Hawkins from Reading University in the United Kingdom and he is, the, of course, the designer of the climate spiral that many, well, not that many, only about one-sixth of the Earth's population have <laughs> just seen. Just a lazy billion, that'll do. You, know, you say a billion, I like to say one-sixth of the Earth's population. I think it's just, you know, just gives people better context. We've got, that's what we're talking about, Ed. We're talking about the right context here. Um, hey, I'm just, uh, you know, thoughts are flying into my head. Would you be able to do a spiral of a certain senator and how many times he gets a scientific thing completely wrong. <laughs> we could do that. Yeah. Sure, you could do that. I reckon that would be cool, actually. I mean, it, it's, it's... Be a, a big spiral. A, <laughs> yeah, it's done a few... Yeah, made, 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 made by a drunken spider. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's very cool. Now, um, it, one of the things I wanted to talk to you a bit about is um, why you think there is this issue with acceptance of human influence climate change. Uh, you know, there, there are... There are people there who seem to just, no matter what you tell them, no matter what you give them, they're going to they're gonna be against it. Now, uh, you know, to put this into, into the right frame, I think, uh, you know, we've told people different things as scientists about coffee for a long time. You know, it's good for you this week, it's bad for you. Th- and, and, and a lot of people, I don't think, especially certain senators, don't understand the scientific method of falsification and, and how that works. I mean, what, what, what are your impressions as to why this is such a problem? That's a good question. I, I think it's clear that facts don't change people's minds very often. Mm. Um, you know, no, no matter how many facts you tell them, I think we have to, to realise that people, mainly emotions are more important, I think, and um, the perceived policies to deal with the, the risks that we face, in, in, in their view, uh, are not what they would like to see. And I think that's that's probably the main part of it, actually. Mm, okay. And and with things, you know, like, I mean, we we compare something like your your spiral data compared to a lot of the other data that's out there. Do you think the data is part of the problem in itself, the way it's presented? I mean, I know you're, you're campaigning a bit, uh, Dr. Ailey was telling me earlier, to kill the rainbow. <laughs> uh, what, what, what is, what's that about? I mean, not rainbows. I mean, people love rainbows and puppies. You can't. Kill's a bit harsh, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Kill, kill, remove the rainbow. Remove the what, to well, tell us about this. Well, the, well the we have moment. to think about, when we think about communicating, thinking about communicating to, to everybody. And we often will use as many colours as possible to mm. communicate what we're mm. doing, to, to show a map or, or to colour in different regions and so on. Um, and we have to think about uh, things like colour blindness, for example. So, you know, a, roughly a few percent of the population, mainly men, um, are colour blind. Uh, you don't see red and green as, as different colours. Yep. And so if we're making a map with red and green on one, on opposite sides, actually you can't tell the difference. And mm. so we're, we're, we're trying to communicate uh, to scientists and to sort of the media about how, you know, how we communicate we need to take these t- types of things into account. Yeah, it's, it's interesting uh, when, when you when you think about these colour scales that people use. I mean, there's colour blindness, which is an issue, but also the fact that the eye doesn't see those in a linear way. So, I- in a sense, even with the best intentions, if you don't compensate for the way the eye sees, 
it's no longer a linear scale. Is that part of the problem? That's exactly that's another part of it. So, for example, yellow. Yellow is a colour that we see very brightly because it, it, it stimulates two cones in our eyes. Mm. And that's why we wear reflective yellow jackets, for example. And so the, the, we, we will see boundaries between yellow and other colours far more clearly mm. than, than boundaries between certain other colours. And so we must be very careful to not put these perceptual boundaries where they don't actually exist. Yeah, so to all the scientists out there, stop using all these colours. <laughs> Um, I've got a question, really, on behalf of everyone else listening to us. We, when we think of climate change, first of all, we think of big businesses, big power stations, coal-fired power stations. And so we can understand what, what countries and corporations can do. But what, what can individuals do to slow down climate change? Excellent question. Um, we all have ways that we can reduce our own emissions. You know, we can... Uh, change our the way we, we travel um, we can you know just be more careful at home about energy use um, but I think the main way that we can help as individuals is by voting mm -hmm. I mean ultimately this is a global international problem which will require global international solutions you know from every country uh, in the world and that has to happen at the very highest level with our mm. politicians and so we must make sure I think that um, we have the politicians that are prepared to to deal with these risks and, and, and then make those very difficult decisions because this is not an easy problem to solve. Mm. This is a very, very challenging um, problem to solve. And we, yeah, we just need the, the politicians to, to take on board those risks. Mm. Now, now, Ed, uh, I, I know it would be great to just uh, focus on you only having ever done one thing, which was the spiral, <laughs> but you, you do do other. <laughs> you are a researcher. Tell us a bit before you go, what, what are you working on at the moment with regards to climatology? Uh, the one I'm most excited, I think, by is... Uh, project I nicknamed Project Time Machine. Um, we we have lots of data going back, you know, a couple of hundred years, temperatures and rainfall and mm. pressure and observations and so on. But there are lots of gaps in that data because uh, people didn't live everywhere all right. over the planet. And so we don't, you know, there were thermometers gradually spread over the world, for example, but we don't have data everywhere. Um, so we don't have a time machine to go back and fill in those gaps. We don't, we can't go back and take measurements where we don't have them. Um, but the, the big issue is that we actually have more observations than we are using. So there are millions and millions, probably billions, of pages of handwritten weather observations in logbooks all over the world, um, which have never been digitised, transcribed, mm -hmm. and turned into usable climate data. And so we could actually have a time machine, effectively, and recover additional historical observations um, where we have big gaps at the moment um, and we need a bigger effort i think to for example we could go into the the national archives in london there are six million pages from the british royal navy sitting in the archives with weather observations every four hours mm. um all over from all over the world from about the year 1800 onwards um you know in in areas where we don't have many observations at the moment to try and piece together and better understand the weather and the climate of the last couple of hundred years and that would really help us as climatologists to understand the variations that we see in our weather and our climate. The, the, the thing I absolutely love about that too is that for me when I think back to the sorts of observations you're making these were made at a time when people would meticulously take um, care of the calibration and understanding mm. and reading of the instruments and, and these instruments weren't sophisticated but boy were they well calibrated and well used and especially the, the Navy records and so forth you, you often get this impression people look at that stuff and say oh you know it can't be as good as what we can 
you know, get from satellite data and so forth. Now, actually, it's probably better. Is that, is that your impression that some of this is really good stuff? They're very, very careful scientists. Mm. And, you know, so I think the most valuable actually would be the, would be the pressure observations. So the, the sailors all over the world recorded sea level pressure because that was what warned them of a coming storm. Mm. You know, they needed to be very, very careful about what was going on with the pressure. If they saw a big drop in pressure, they knew there was a storm coming. And so they, they were taken very, very carefully. And it's the, the pressure locally, which you know, determines the wind patterns and so on. And so just from the pressure observations, we can piece together the circulation of the atmosphere very well. And if, if we could just rescue all of those, um, then that would, be, that would help us a lot. Yep. And people can help. So mm. there's a website which you know, I, could, I would encourage people to log on to, uh, oldweather.org, right. um, which is trying to rescue some of these weather observations. Um, so uh, they have rescued some of the British Royal Navy logs already, and they're currently looking at um, some Arctic voyages from the, from the United States. Um, and so people can log on to oldweather.org look at these pages because it, it's all handwritten which means we need people to read it yep. computers are not able to read this data yet so we need people volunteers and there are thousands of volunteers worldwide helping rescue this data already yeah um, so people can go and, and help us out so i'm guessing you've probably already done this but i mean this could be like the city project where you download a pdf of a page and you type it back in and bang it goes is this happening that's very much yeah. what goes on there's wow. a, a clever interface on the website where you you can follow a ship you know this particular ship travels around the arctic and you can you know be the captain of the ship if you like and uh, go through page by page and 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 put in the weather data to, to better help help us understand what happened sorry mate but your spiral stuff was good but this is better <laughs> <Sounds great. laughs> well it sounds like a great citizen science project really yeah. really good um one of the things you mentioned just before was how these old records would really help us understand kind of the variability of climate versus the change in the climate and i mean i know uh, a lot of people have used these ideas of variability uh, for example a great one was the this supposed global warming hiatus um, in kind of the first decade of the, the 21st century. Um, and I was just wondering, getting back to what we were speaking about earlier in terms of the communication, how do you think the climate science community has really handled its communication of this, this variability versus change, particularly when it comes to things like the, the hiatus? Well, I say that in quotes, people can't see me. But <laughs> <laughs> I think we could have improved, mm. you know, with hindsight, we could have done a lot better. Mm. I and mean, I think we've understood that the climate varies naturally, um, for a very long time um, uh, and so we've been focused on trying to understand as a community the long-term changes and to try and communicate the causes of those long-term changes to the policymakers who need to make these very difficult decisions um, the aspect of the variability has has been there we've always known that we will see differing trends at different times in different areas um, you know, temperatures can go down temporarily as well as up, and, and we have to communicate that. It may have got slightly lost, um, but we've always understood it. It's always been there, but the communication hasn't necessarily been as good as it could have been. And I think that maybe got us in a bit of trouble recently um, over this slowdown. Um, but it's not, you know, it wasn't necessarily a surprise to us. We understood that this would happen, um, but we haven't necessarily communicated that as, as widely as perhaps we should have done. Mm-hmm. Well, there's lots more work to do there, Ed, and I think um, you've got about three years until the next Olympics to <laughs> come up with your next uh, rabbit out of a hat. Um, congratulations on this work, and, and a huge congratulations from us on, on the climate spiral, because one of the things that, you know, over uh, close to 25 years of broadcasting here, I haven't seen a huge number 
of amazing pieces of science communication. That's one, and it would be great to see a lot more of them, especially in this important space. So well done. Thanks for chatting to us today, and have a great time while you're here in Australia. That's very kind. Thank you. Associate Professor Ed Hawkins is from the University of Reading in the UK and is travelling here in Australia at the moment. Um, And Dr Ailey was great enough to get him into the studio. Three, triple We have a couple of minutes for some news, which we uh, didn't do at the start of the show. Dr Ailey, what do you got for us? So I've got a bit more news from the world of climate this week. In fact, uh, the world of the Arctic. So some a lot of people probably have heard about the decline in, in sea ice over the Arctic over the last kind of, well, mm. 30 years really, but, you know, it's really ramped up in the last 10 years or so. And um, this year we were tracking pretty low. We were tracking close to the 2012 record, but then things kind of, you know, it started to, to melt not as not as uh, quickly as it used to. And so we didn't quite hit the 2012 record low. But since that time, since about September, October, things have gone haywire. It has been very warm over uh, some parts of the Arctic. And all of a sudden, we've had a slowdown in the growth of sea ice because, of course, it's autumn up there mm. getting into the oh, cold yeah. season. And we've had areas of the Arctic, I think, in the last couple of days that were 20 degrees Celsius above average. So really, really warm. And, and areas, uh, Svalbard and Sweden and little islands north of north of Scandinavia have been tracking kind of five to eight degrees on average. Above. So I was going to say, what's the, what's the average temperature, yeah. which are minus 15? No, or? so this is the problem is that um, at these locations... It's not below zero yet. Right. So what was it before? It was normally <laughs> it minus was, 10, uh, minus 15 Yeah, or minus 10, oh. minus 15. Yep. And so you add, you know, yeah, yeah, 8, yeah. 10, tw- 20 degrees Celsius and all of a sudden it's above zero and you don't get the ice, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, there's a key point there, is it? Well, the freezes is yeah. <laughs> about <Funny that>. zero. <laughs> kind of yeah, important that's number. exactly right. Wow. Well, yeah, about yeah. minus one up there because it's salty, yeah, you yeah, know, salty, salty water. Yep. So, yeah, and it's just these, these unusual weather patterns that are really basically bringing a whole heap of warm air from the subtropics right up mm. north, up into uh, areas, particularly kind of north of Alaska and uh, north of Scandinavia, I think, is where it's um, wow. really warm. So, yeah, keep an eye on that because it's not growing as fast as it should at the moment. Not the best stuff. Mm. Dr. Jeff, a minute to go. What do you got for me? Well, uh, I'm talking... Autism, and I'm talking epigenetics. Many people know what autism is. It's a condition that's quite varied in its presentation from very mild to very, to very severe, um, to do with social communication um, and, social, uh, and repetitive restrictive behaviours. Um, epigenetics is what I call a study of gene switches. Um, it's um, a way that gene switches can react to the environment to turn our genes on and off. A group uh, of international researchers just had a look at one gene switch called the acetyl group that many, uh, many people haven't studied before. And they looked at brains of people, um, dead people, of course, that, that had autism compared to uh, those that didn't have autism. And they threw, unlike um, most of us, they threw in all different kinds of autism. It's a very heterogeneous disorder. And of course, everybody else me included, would say, oh, this is too wide. It's such a very different uh, disease from one person or condition from one person to the other. And they surprised us all. They found a signature of these gene switches that seemed to be shared between 
all autisms. And to me, mm. that's just like the way that the diagnosis is now. First and foremost, it's autism. It's very wide. Yep. And then pediatricians generally treat each individual differently. And that was, that was the main message of the paper, that there is potential hope for, uh, hopefully in the future, diagnostic biomarkers using mm. an epigenetic mark such as the acetyl group mm, interesting stuff well folks we're going to have to leave it there and hand over to the team from edith thank you so much for listening to einstein and gogo today dr jeff great having you in thank you very thank much you. and dr ailey thank you thank you and a huge thank you to our two guests today um terry burtz and also ed hawkins um both uh, fascinating guys we're great privilege to have them with us um you've been listening to einstein and gogo on three triple hour i'm dr shane we hope to speak to you again next week until then i would say have a great and hopefully not too warm sunday <laughs> and um we will have a chat to you again remember science is everywhere well pretty much everywhere <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.